Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 7th, 2023, and my guest is psychologist Paul Bloom of the University of Toronto and emeritus professor at Yale University. This is Paul's fourth appearance on Econ Talk. He was last here in October of 2021 talking about his book, The Sweet Spot. Our topic for today is his latest book, Psych, P-S-Y-C-H. I want to mention to listeners that our conversation may have from time to time adult themes. You may want to uh, vet it before listening with small children. And I thank everyone for voting. We'll have those results of your favorite episodes of 2022 out soon. Paul, welcome back to Econ Talk. I'm, I'm delighted to be back, Russ. So how would you describe this book? It's a little different from your previous books. How, what's, your, um, what's your goal with this book? It is different. My previous books all sort of made one argument or another um, about empathy, about suffering. And this book is a review of all of psychology. It's um, it's meant to be, it's not meant to be a textbook, but it's meant to be the sort of thing people could pick up. They want to learn about the field. They want to have a very, very up-to-date uh, understanding of psychology, its strengths and, and weaknesses, its discoveries, its failures. And uh, and part of it is review. A large part of it is my own opinion. I try to be careful to to mark off clearly when I say, oh, I think this whole this whole line of work is silly, or I think this line of work is magnificent. But it's uh, it's kind of it's a labor of love. It's every it's everything I know from from Freud to consciousness to clinical psychology. I I am drained after the book because all all of me is in it. It's only twenty three pages. Uh, no, kidding. It is longer <laughs> than that. But it, for yeah. a book that's all that you know, it's it's surprisingly uh, short. It's under uh, four hundred pages, three something. Um, I, I, wanna, I have a good editor. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Um, I, I want to. Before we get into some of the specifics of the book, and I and I would tell readers that it is I loved it because it's nuanced. Uh, as you said, you you talk about what you like and don't like, and you're very careful to say what's your opinion, what isn't, and what we know and don't know, and what we know probably for sure, and what we might not know very much about at all. And that part, of course, for me, is especially fun. But I want I want to start with a, a more philosophical question about psychology generally and and social science of which. Uh, I am also a social scientist, so to speak. I'm an, I'm an economist. And I, it's, it's the longest question. I apologize in advance. Uh, I was once confronted by a physicist who said to me uh, in a social setting, uh, is, is economics, um, do economists know anything? Oh, I was, it, it, he said it like it was a real question. I thought, I thought he was being sarcastic. Uh, he wasn't. Uh, I said, I started to answer and everything I said to him, pretty much his response was, well, that's obvious. Or, well, that's just common sense. And then finally, uh, he said, when I say no anything, I mean like, like where's Mars going to be on June 17th, 2028? Because that's what physicists know things like that. And they know other things too, but that's one of the things they know. And I said, well, I, don't, I actually don't think we know anything remotely like that like what interest rates are going to be in a year or six months. 
we we don't know whether people will uh, how many cars people will buy if we put a tax a larger tax on automobiles. But but I do know that they'll buy fewer. And he said, well, of course that's obvious. So I, I kind of got myself into um, uh, a little bit of a corner, and finally I told him about emergent order and the idea that things uh, there's complexity in human affairs, much of which appears in say how prices form. And he said, "Well, that's interesting." Okay, uh, so that's kind of as far as I got, and and, it, and to some extent, I think the idea of market forces and emergent order is much of what we know in economics. And I would add the depressing addition that much of the published research in economics is not good for much. It has no enduring quality. It will not change people's lives. It does not enrich your understanding. It's um, intellectual golf to some extent. So I want you to reflect on your own field. Some of what I read in your book, I did learn things, but a lot of it strikes a, a non-professional reader as common sense or intuitive. How would you defend against that charge? It's, it's a fair charge. Um, I think it was Noam Chomsky who once said that if you want to learn about human nature, really about human nature, you'd be much better off reading some good novels than reading any psychology textbook in the world. And I agree with that. If, if I want to know, if I want to know about, about successful marriages, are raising your children, or running a business, or being a person in this century. There's a stack of novels that are well worth reading. I some really good TV shows and good documentaries. Uh, so it, it's not that you know psychology will, will teach you sort of the secrets of human nature at a level that will give you something above and beyond that. We we are our, our our insights are often banal and uninteresting, and we don't write anywhere near as well as as a great novelist. I will, I will cop to all of that. Um, but I think we honestly have made some discoveries, some surprising and interesting discoveries. So your question was, uh, you were gracious enough to sort of warn me about the question. It was a long enough question. I could think of some examples. <laughs> um, I will, I will quickly give you three of them. And, and, uh, you know, one of them is my own part of my own research, um, is how much of knowledge is innate, is hardwired, how much babies know. You know, you ask many people, many people think that babies are just, they, they don't look so smart and all they know so much. But using very subtle methods, we find that Plato was largely right. A lot of knowledge is inborn about the social world and the physical world. The second thing that surprises people is memory. Many people think we just record the world. And um, and maybe we forget it, but if we try hard enough, we'll get to it. A skilled hypnotist, a sympathetic therapist will bring it all back. And what psychologists have learned is that none of that's true. Memory is always a reconstruction, a fragile reconstruction. You ask people of our age, because we're old enough to answer the question, where were we on September 11th when a plane hits the Twin Towers? We have our story. As a psychologist, I'm here to say the story's wrong. There's been enough studies where you ask people right after it happens, what happened? And then you ask them years later. It's a story is because we tell the story so often, we mistake uh, what we tell for what really happened. Eyewitness testimony is a disaster. Anybody, now it's not way anybody who's, who's married knows this. You know, you say, you say, you know, remember that, remember that horrible thing you said to me? I said that to you, you said that to me. And it's frustrating because we believe our memories are great, but they are not. And this has tremendous implications for the legal system, for instance. We now know how a, a, a police interrogation cannot just, it's, it's, 
maybe even a good, a good, a good faith effort to extract a memory can implant the memory. I guess the third one is most controversial, um, which is, um, and it's psychology plus a bit of behavioral genetics. It's not merely the huge influence of our genes on every behavioral trait you could imagine. You know, 40%, 60%, 50% intelligence, personality, religiosity, political orientation. But it's the fact that the rest of it, the environmental cause, doesn't seem to come from parents. It largely comes from the external world, your peers, accidental experiences. Now, there are three claims. They, all of them are to some extent shocking. You might respond and say, I don't believe this one. I don't believe that one. But I think that's the kind of, that's psychology at its best. How does that convince That's you? fantastic. Um, I think, I think some of the more provocative claims of the field are problematic. And you talk about that in the book. Uh, you confront the replication crisis head on, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about it explicitly in a little bit. But I, I want to start with the memory point. Um, and uh, you said it's probably it, it's very useful for thinking about the um, legal system. I think it's really useful for thinking about marriage because yeah. uh, I have maybe it's just you and me. But I I do recognize that there are times when I have obviously absolutely correct memories of a conversation my wife and I had, and her version is different. And I have to confess that for it's some times in my marriage, I thought, well, you know, my wife struggles to remember things accurately, and uh, it's taken some maturity to realize it could part of it could be me too. And that's a hugely valuable thing to appreciate about oneself. It makes one, one humble. Yeah. Um, there was, this is a, a while ago, Hillary Clinton very famously misremembered an event from her past years ago where she was, uh, she was visiting some foreign country and believed she was under heavy fire and everything. But then there was footage and none of that was true. And people were horribly unsympathetic. She's a, oh, she's a psychopath. She's a liar. Maybe she's senile early on. And all of our memories, we are all like that all the time. My most, my most mundane example was I once gave a talk at a university and a student questioned me and I was quite belligerent. And I responded very poorly, I realized. I got quite angry. And we went back and forth. Now, this, uh, when I, at the university, some students were doing an experiment where they were filming people giving talks for some reason or another. And they were nice enough to send me to film and me give a talk. And I said, oh, my God, I'm going to relive this terrible episode. And I'm watching it. And none of that happened. The question was, was fairly civil, polite. My response was measured. There was a bit of humor in it. And I just told wrong. And, but it's not just me. It's you. It's everybody. Yeah, that's really powerful. And, um, you know, if you take the idea of emergent order and say, uh, well, isn't that novel? Doesn't that help you see the world? And the answer is yeah. what? That things are connected one to the other and that there's <laughs> unintended consequences and things interact? I mean, what's – so I, I think we have to be fair to, to both disciplines and, and, and admit that part of the power of the insights that we're talking about comes from immersing yourself in the, in the world. So yeah. if you say to somebody, you know, sometimes you misremember things, they'll go, oh, wow, big deal. But I think yeah. the level of – to really appreciate the, the memory issue, I think you have to read some 
psychological studies and you have to think about it and talk about it and maybe teach it now and then and uh, for it to go in. And I think um, for it to be useful to you is a different level than having heard it or conceding That's it. That's right. And I would say, just actually to defend your field, we, you talk about specific findings and, and the sort of thing that would please the physicist. But there's also something called thinking like an economist. And, and you know, I, I, I listen to your, your, your podcast fairly religiously, and you often think like an economist, and sometimes you don't think like an economist, and that's interesting too. But thinking like an economist is a valuable tool. You think in terms of incentives, you're sensitive to unintended consequences, you're, you're, um, you're, you're, you're sensitive to the idea that, that when there's two, two parties in, in, in an interaction, maybe you sh- maybe they both could benefit from a change in certain way. All these things that come with tools and some of it, if you just wrote it down, maybe common sense. Oh, incentives. Of course, who would doubt it? But you talk to an economist and pretty soon you find, for me, I find my face getting a bit red and all my, how could you think that way about these important matters? And the fact that my face gets a bit red and I'm trying to, to, to struggle with this is that suggests there's something really interesting going on. And I'd like to think in some way we think like a psychologist. Yeah. And that's sort of a different set of tools. And I think it, it, it can be valuable. Yeah, I agree. And, and uh, you know, I think I probably confessed on this program, I, my father had a master's in psychology. Uh, and he was the first person in his family to go to college. Certainly was the first person in his family to get a master's degree. And the main thing that he got from that was that psychology was unreliable hogwash, which he mm-hmm. uh, told his son that, and his son, respecting his father, agreed. And I spent way too much of my life not paying any attention to psychology because obviously it's not meaningful. And yet, as you point out, thinking like a psychologist is quite helpful. And psychologists struggle with questions and issues that don't have clean answers, much like economics. But the process of of grappling with them, I think, makes you more sensitive to their to the complexity of everyday life in all kinds of ways. So, I think we're good here. I I think so. I and mean, one way I defend thinking like a psychologist is in issues that that we often wrestle with moral issues, where you know I'm I'm very capable of thinking like a moralist and say, well, that's evil and, and, and the person should be punished. But, but you, you think like a psychologist, you realize, well, a person most likely does not think what themselves that they're evil. They probably think they're the good guys. Yeah. And they think I'm evil. Yeah. And I think it's very useful, um, to think that way. Uh, Robert Wright has been, you know, banging the drum about more cognitive empathy, more uh, more trying to see the world through other people's eyes, even people like maybe Vladimir Putin, who we might think of as monsters, and saying it's not the same as saying, "Oh, what they're doing is fine." It's not the same as as you know uh, endorsing their views, but but it's useful and it's correct. It, it's it trying to understand people and also trying to understand how the situation context gives rise to behaviors. Very much thing like a psychologist. I think it's kind of a good habit to get into. Yeah, I agree. I think it, um, well, it's profoundly entertaining too when you realize, <laughs> well, when you realize that that's not a cardboard figure, whether it's yeah. the person at work who you fought with or, uh, the leader of a belligerent country. Um, and it helps you appreciate the human condition and our ability to do that is really interesting. And you, of course, you spent some time in the book. Uh, about just how extraordinary is our ability to do things like that, which you don't think about when you think about, oh, we're thinking, we're rational, 
or irrational, or, you know, we have a brain, we have consciousness, but the ability to imagine other people's um, situations is remarkably difficult. And the fact that we can do it at all is quite extraordinary. It is extraordinary. Uh, Philosophers have noted that it it falls apart when we, you know, uh, Thomas Nagel wrote a famous article called, what's it like to be a bat? And we can't know what it's like to be a bat. And I can't really know what it's like to be you or you, me. I, I kind of put myself in your shoes. I imagine myself in Israel. I imagine myself your job. But that's not what it's like to be you. But we should marvel at how well we can do it. How I can come to you with my problems and you could honestly, so I, I kind of understand where you're coming from. We could have a close relationship where, where people, people in love really, they do get each other. Yeah. And, and that's just extraordinary. And, and one of the reasons why I love novels to go back to them is, is novelists, of course, are extraordinarily skilled at putting us in the heads of people with lives very different from our own. I think I had thought about this before, but, you know, I, I, as I know you know, I'm interested in the upside of marriage. The downside's pretty clear. Uh, so I think about the upside, uh, I've been talking about a long marriage. You know, one of the upsides of a long marriage is um, an immense amount of data about one data point. You could argue it's three data points. It's you, it's your spouse, yourself, and the two of you together. And yeah. it's those three things are. It's surprising how much there is to know. <laughs> You'd think, well, you know, after a year, you kind of plumb the depths. Not true. Not true. Uh, human beings are really complicated, even yourself. And um, there's something to be said. I don't know what what the, what's the analogy for this this uh, deep study. You know, you're a psychologist. Oh, you spent a lot of time with psychology. Well, my wife is one of my deep studies, and I'm one of hers. And that's uh, it's a different kind of intellectual immersion. And to make matters worse or better, we're moving targets. Just just when you think you know her, she changes, and 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 you change too in your relationship. Your relationship changes. You know, you often cite my friend Lori Paul, uh, the philosopher yeah. who talks about transformative experiences. Yeah. And I never thought of it this way, but, but a marriage is a transformative experience. It, it shifts your priorities. Yeah. It shifts how you see the world. And you can't quite imagine what it would be until you're in that. Yeah. No, for sure. And as, uh, you know, a friend of mine, quoting a friend of mine, I've done it before, but, you know, his dad told him that until you get married, you're an idiot. And there's some truth to that. Uh, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about what you care about. You learn a lot about another person. Uh, you do get a little smarter in some sense, if you're paying attention, I guess. I don't know. If you're paying attention. Yeah. yeah. Um, you were talking about infants, and one of my favorite parts of the book uh, is language. Uh, I have a uh, – we have a new grandchild, six months old. My youngest child's tw- – 23. So it's been about 22 and a half years since I saw a six-month-old. And I f- you forget what they're like. And, you know, sometimes you'll walk up to a, a teenager and they'll say about a, a newborn, well, can she talk? Can she say anything? <laughs> and, and no, not yet. It's going to take a while. So you know, our, our granddaughter at six months can coo and, and she is remarkably entertaining uh, because she can smile and grasp and try to eat things with her hands, including my hand, uh, my thumb, (laughs) my nose. And yet there's going to be a day, almost certainly, 
that she would be able to say Papa and then an enormous larger number of words. And that is incomprehensible. That is just not imaginable other than the fact that we know that everyone we talked to once was like that. It's really extraordinary. It is. It is extraordinary. My my sons are in their their twenties, and they're both in in wonderful, committed relationships. And I don't tell them this. I'll I'll announce it later. You know, grandchildren is something which I kind of look forward to. That that sounds it sounds like quite the thing. Um, yeah, I, I my first my when I was a graduate student at MIT, and my 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 doctoral dissertation was on language learning, and particularly word learning, how children learn the meanings of words, which also became my first book. And, um, and it is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. Um, other animals have their own communication systems. Uh, and people can teach with tremendous efforts of rudiments of, of human language to, to chimps, for instance, or dogs. But nothing compares to the blossoming of language in a child. It works on this timetable. It, it, there's babbling. There's the first words, which almost always include mama and papa, some version of that. And then gradually syntax comes in. And it is, it is an extraordinary process that, that with so much effort and understanding is still largely mysterious. I'm, I'm quite persuaded that what we see is a biological, uh, process that, that just like other animals have innate communications and we have ours. But of course, because English and Hebrew and Korean all differ, there has to be a lot of learning that takes place. And it's this extraordinary process. Uh, one of the things, the examples you give, which is, um, apparent to me as a newcomer to a foreign country, even though I knew a few Hebrew rudiments before I got here, Hebrew speech spoken by an Israeli is very hard for me. I will yeah. recognize the occasional word. If I'm pretty confident about what the topic is, I might get a phrase. Sometimes a sentence, exhilarating. But you point out that one of the greatest mysteries is that Chinese, I, I don't think you speak Chinese, right? Not a bit. So Chinese is just a bunch of noise uh, to you, and Hebrew often is to me. How do you figure out where the words start and stop? <laughs> because a native speaker is a, a, a torrent of noise. That's it's right. not just like a word, then a word, then a word, and you are able to understand how they go together. It's a torrent. So the very first thing you have to do is figure out where the words start and stop. Now, yeah. of course, to be fair, we do – what do we teach our children, which maybe is irrelevant. Maybe if we didn't teach them at all, I think they'd already, they'd pick it up. They don't need to be taught. But we point at things and we say dog yeah. or we say hand or we say tongue and we stick out our tongue. And then they can, in theory, hear those sounds in the middle of a long sentence. But I don't think they need to be taught those words that way. I think they get the whole thing, right? No, you're right. They don't because some cultures don't do that. Some cultures don't talk directly to kids. Kids learn mostly through overheard speech and they do just fine. I, this may be one of the mysteries that, that people have solved. Um, the claim is, and I talk about this in the book, is that kids do statistics on sounds. So, um, so the idea is that, you know, you have a, a, a word, uh, like mother and the, the ma and the thur go together a lot. And, you know, if you say, um, um, uh, be nice to your mother. Your and mother go together sometimes, but because they're separate words, they don't reliably go together. It sounds like you need an Excel sheet to do this, and it, it is enormously complicated. But the claim is that kids do statistics and figure it out. So gradually, you know, starting off, English 
sounds to a kid like Chinese or Hebrew sounds to me just as mishmash of noise. But gradually they pull apart. And now as an adult or even as a four-year-old, we hear English. We can't even understand the idea that somebody couldn't hear it as a bunch of distinct words because our mind puts in the slots. Now, another question which comes up, which is of real practical urgency, is why can't you and me, why can't we do this now? Why is language learning so hard as adults? And I, the, the idea is there's a so-called critical period or sensitive period where, where the system is all built for learning language as a kid. When you hit a certain age, maybe uh, 13 for, for, for uh, the sound of a language, 17 for the syntax, it shuts down mostly. And second language learning is murder. Well, I'm working at it. Not yeah. giving up, but and I'm better. Don't don't give up. People people get better. The pace though is glacial. Uh, <laughs> whereas for that that newborn or that five year old, it's yeah, it's like pouring uh, you know pouring out of a giant fire hose into a big container. So beautiful. I, I, I often think that the differences in how people learn second languages may have a lot of personality differences. Which is you got to be able to to be comfortable sounding like an idiot, hmm. yeah. And that's and that's tough. That takes a strength of character to sort of barely garble out things and have people impatiently correct you. That's fascinating. I think that I think there's some truth to that. Um, you know, we had Patrick House on the program talking about consciousness recently, yeah. And he told this remarkable story about the driver who, at the last minute, driving down a a dangerous road in 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 Iraq with I think it was Iraq with a senior official just just slams on the brakes turns around because quote he got a bad feeling and he couldn't explain it and then later he had an hypothesis but Patrick's point was that in, is the way I took it which I'm eager to take because I loved it and I want us to be careful um, but his point was that intuition is from the back of your brain that stores everything and you don't realize that your brain's doing a lot of empirical work on your life experiences. And that is what intuition is. I may be on being unfair to Patrick. I apologize, Patrick, if that's the case. But um, do you think that's true? And and talk about long-term memory, because you have some really interesting things to say about it. I think, let me, let me zoom in on this. I, I heard your discussion with Patrick, and I, I think it's somewhat true. So the truth is we're tremendously, uh, we're tremendous statistical learners. We put together data all the time. And, you know, this is the origin of, of all sorts of beliefs and gut feelings, origin of stereotypes. Um, and, and often this is, this is terrific. It guides us in a way that conscious, rational thought can't. But the idea that our intuition is in some sense has this great wisdom, I think has been overblown. I think often you have a gut feeling. This feels so right. You'll remember the stories when the gut feeling was uh yeah was right but um but often often i'm a big fan of rational deliberative thought i won't tell you the person but um but uh i once interviewed a graduate student and um and he was a he was all fine on paper but i knew he wouldn't work out i just had this feeling I, and i've seen enough grad i just had this feeling and i voted against accepting him Needless to say, he joined a program, became a stellar professor, and now is just this brilliant scholar. <laughs> I had a feeling, but maybe he was wearing a cologne that, yeah. that my enemy in high school wore. Maybe I was picking up on all sorts of things. I just, um, I, I know, you know, Malcolm Gladwell famously wrote a book, Blinks, making a similar claim that, that the gut, the intuition is, is fast. But 
there's a million anecdotes in favor of it, but I don't know. I, I, I tend to be skeptical. Do you yeah. have any skepticism for this? Well, I do think I do think as you get older, you accumulate experience, and that's worth something. And the if you if I might just call that intuition and and leave it at that. I I do think the idea. Yeah that I'm running uh, statistical analysis in the part of my long-term memory that I don't have direct access to is probably a fantasy. I like it. It, it makes me feel good. Uh, it's a beautiful idea, but it's probably not true. And I do obviously take the point that the million anecdotes are offset by the two million you don't remember, or rather not remember. And that's the virtuous psychology because it reminds you that you don't remember everything that, that you should. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and also keep in mind, one of the great success stories of psychology is the research program by Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, finding that we very much, we often draw upon heuristics and, and, and shortcuts and tricks. And these are smart. These are, you know, in a world where you have to make a fan, it, it makes sense to say if something comes to mind quickly, it must be frequent. And that's, that's a good way to work for, you know, a world where we don't have computers and statistical analysis and so on. But often in the real world, they lead us astray. I have a gut feeling that flying on a plane is really dangerous. I have a gut feeling that street crime is 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 probably how I'm going to die, and so on and so forth. But you know, you look at the numbers; it's just not true. Yeah, I, I feel this way because when planes crash and when people get mugged, that ends up in the news. While you know, people dying of strokes doesn't. But going back to your graduate student assessment. Are there colleagues of yours whose intuition you think is better? I'll call it judgment to get away from a word that has a certain stigma about it, maybe. Whose, long, whose perspective judgments you trust more than others? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But the word judgment and intuition and wisdom kind of covers a lot. And I think that the people who I trust will sit down and think about it a bit. It's not just, oh, I know, I know right away. Oh, yeah. They, they, they think about it. And often they have good tools for reasoning. You know, there, there's, there's people like, um, there's a wonderful program, which I don't discuss in my book, and I kind of regret not raising it, by uh, Philip Tetlock on super forecasters. Yeah. And, and as a very, you'd think somebody would have done this a long time ago. He's interested in why do some people get it right? You ask people, you know, what's going to happen in, in, in Ukraine? Where are gas prices going to go? Who's going to be the Republican nominee? You get a thousand people and have them all give you your best judgment. Some will get it right. Most will get it wrong. What distinguishes those who get it right? And, um, and there's many answers to it, but often it's, often it's, you don't just go for your gut. Use the tools of rationality. Yeah. I don't, you. I don't mean to, when I use the word intuition and, and you'll probably remember Patrick said, you never use your gut. Your gut's good for digesting food. Um, so you should use a different word, but, but when I talk about it, I don't mean snap judgment. Yeah. I mean the ability to make a make a measured decision in the absence of reliable data, which yeah. is um, it's an art, obviously, and it's not a science. And I guess we could both concede that over our lifetimes, um, we will probably overestimate our own ability to do that uh, for two reasons: we forget the bad gut, excuse me, our bad intuitive calls. And yeah. um, uh, it's a small sample. So even if we think we, we're pretty good at it, we're, we're probably, even if we do remember most of the data points, we're probably mm, struggling with the size of the sample. 
And that's the field of psychology, all of it, all in itself, that of positive illusions. Why a healthy mind tends to remember its successes and somewhat dismisses failures. But there's what psychologists call the better than average effect or the Lake Wobegon effect from Garrison Keillor's story where uh, all the children were above average. Um, and, you know, so you ask people, you know, how good a professor are you? How good a driver? How good a, a, a partner, romantic partner? Everybody says, I'm better than average. You, you ask people, how, how good are you at overriding psychological biases like the better than average effect? And people say, I'm better than average. <laughs> So, so, and, and, and it might be that this isn't a glitch in the system. I sometimes think that, uh, that there are interesting exceptions where it pays to underestimate your abilities, but, um, just like a smoke alarm should kind of go off uh, a lot of times, even when there's, even when there's no real risk, because you better, better not to miss something than to get some false alarms. But I think there's a lot of cases where if I didn't have an overestimation of my abilities, I wouldn't get out of bed. Yeah. You know, it's a fascinating question to me whether, and you write about it in this book, and it's quite, quite, as as I said before, it's quite nuanced, and um, it's pretty clear to me. And I think you you say a similar, you have a similar theme in the book. There's an enormous number of times in life that over optimism is is helpful, and there are many times when it, it it's very dangerous. <laughs> so it's That's not right. a one way thing. That's right. And we might be smart at it. We might be over-optimistic in just those instances um, where it's good to be over-optimistic, but then, then worried, overly worried, overly anxious in cases uh, where it's um, where where it's good to be overly anxious. There's there's um I talk about some work saying I think it's, this is one case where psychologists have sort of gone wrong and need to correct. But there's so much talk about um about the problem of having too much anxiety, too much fear. Because those are people who go into psychiatrist's office and go to psychologists and seek out self-help books. And if I ask people, what do you, you know, do you have problem with anxiety and fear? They say, yes, I have too much of it. But um, this uh, psychologist, clinical psychologist, Randolph Nessie, says, we're missing the fact that having too little anxiety and fear is also a problem. He has this wonderful line where he says that uh, people with too much anxiety find him in psychiatrist offices. People with too little anxiety find him in morgues. So, yeah, no, it's a really um, take the title of your previous book. There's a sweet spot. There's some. There's a sweet spot for you know. everything. Um, I like your take on rationality. It's kind of a silly question whether human beings are rational or not. Economists get pulled into these debates because of the rise of behavioral economics. That economists uh, they think people are rational, but we know they're not. What's, yeah. your, what's your reaction to that? I, I have a strong reaction against this. I think that um, I think we do succumb to illusions. We have problems in reasoning. Um, a lot of your colleagues and economics have, have recently sort of rebelled against the idea of the rational man, and a lot of really interesting insights. But we are we have extraordinary powers of reason, and. I mean, one simple demonstration is psychologists love to say, oh, look at this ridiculous fallacy people make. And then we all kind of point and laugh and say people are so stupid. Forgetting for the moment that we're people too. And if we seem to have an ability to notice um, that they're fallacies, so something's going on in our head that gives us the right answer. And I think that even, in, even when it doesn't look like we're being rational, we're often rational. So I give the, I try to say, what's the best case against rationality? And, you know, very potent cases, political 
views. We're extremely partisan in our politics. We often get facts wrong. We often indulge in conspiracy theorizing both on the left and on the right. And it seems like, oh my God, we're so stupid. But I think that rationality is acting uh, in a way that achieves a goal. And if your goal is truth, then you are being dumb to uh, support your political party. But if your goal is to get along with people and to be part of a group, then sometimes behaviors that would seem stupid actually make, make sense. If everybody in my community um, thinks that uh, Barack Obama, that Trump stole the election or Biden stole the election or whatever, then as a good community member, there's a lot to be gained by me sharing your views, regardless of whether or not it's true. And I think that we need to have more sympathy and a more sympathetic understanding to what people want before jumping and saying, oh, they're being foolish. Yeah, one of my favorites in economics is the idea that giving gifts is irrational. Because I could give you money and then you'd be able to buy the gift that I'd picked out if that was what gave you the most pleasure. But obviously that's low probability and the money gives you the freedom to buy the thing you'd like the most. As if the only reason we give gifts is to maximize the recipient's well-being as opposed to build a relationship, connect with another person, show that you spent time thinking about them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a long list, but it's not irrational to give That's a gift. exactly right. Economists talk about was the phrase of dead weight loss yeah. or something. Yeah. And then they say, oh, every Christmas, $5 billion <laughs> is lost or something. And it is, it is in some way a breathtakingly naive view. Yeah. Of, of what goes on in people. Uh, uh, when people, the purpose of a gift isn't to transfer resources, it's to often to show people how much you care yeah. and how much you, you love them. And passing over a hundred bucks does not quite do the trick. That's, that's a, that's a great example where, where on a first easy glance, say, people are so stupid. And then, then you look deeper. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting about it though. I, I, the counterpoint is, um, is registering for a wedding. If you think yeah. about how strange, I, I, I just never realized how much that is like cash, obviously. It's sort of a tasteful way of letting people give cash, but pretending yes. that they're giving a gift. Uh, here right. in Israel, it's very common to give cash to for a new newlyweds. And of course, newlyweds desperately need cash. <laughs> they don't yes. need the seventh um, uh, crockpot. Silver tea set. Yeah, silver yeah, tea set. So... There are situations where giving cash is not is not absurd, and it's interesting that the whole idea of registering and the elaborate nature of it is is remarkably like cash, but re- maintains right. the aura have, of gift giving. Yes, and and there are bizarre compromises. My favorite example is gift certificates. So I give you a gift certificate for Office Max or something, and the thing about it, it's just like money, except you could only spend it at one at one place. <laughs> And it's either the best of both worlds or the worst of both but worlds. But it feels so a little better than which. cash. I don't know. It yeah, because look, I, I, I thought about you. You like office supplies. You'll like this. <laughs> and um, so you know. And but it's also very easy for me to for me to to to, to get it. Sure. So yeah. So and 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 you're raising a good point. I mean, people people. Um, I think we should respect people's goals, and from that perspective, a lot of behavior kind of so it begins to make sense. But we have glitches. We have flaws. We're finite beings. Yeah. Um, we could have systems like our emotions, which have evolved, I think, for, for good reasons and good social reasons. But, of course, they can go awry. 
you know, you could kill somebody out of anger. You could you know, sexual jealousy. You could sadness. I think is useful. That too much sadness leads to depression and and you know misery and makes your life worse. So I don't want to be uh, you know Panglossian about it. Say, oh, everything is there for this wonderful purpose. We have to respect our limitations as well. Yeah. Uh, let, let's talk about motivation. You give. I thought it was very um, concise of you. I, you gave, I think, three theories of motivation. Uh, I've forgotten the first two. The third was maximize pleasure and minimize pain, uh, the Benthamite calculus. Uh, the second one was was a wacky one that I didn't find it tenable. You didn't either. The first one was minimize about, prediction error. What? Minimize prediction error. Yeah, and, error. and the first we don't was, need, we don't have to get into that. Yeah, the first thing was equilibrium in the brain or homeostasis. Yeah, that's right. Homeostasis. Yeah. But the it's a deep question, obviously, and it's useful to think about because it helps you understand yourself. Uh to start with, the things we say when asked why did we do X are really a strange phenomenon often. Yeah. Um and I'm not sure is it do you believe that there is a real reason? Uh, where would you? Where do you stand on that? Just general issue. How do you think we should think about it? Or why people do what they do? That's a good question. I, 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 my point in reviewing those three theories is, I don't think there's a single answer. I'm a pluralist with regard to motivation. So I think, I think your story of why you eat food when you're hungry is going. To going to be different from the story of why you chose to become, you know, president of a college. And it's going to be different from the story for why you scratch your leg when it itches. Um, I know psychologists love to say, oh, here's a simple principle. And philosophers do too. And I think it's just nonsense. I think to the extent when you try to do a simple principle, it becomes so banal, like, you know, do what you want to, you, you do uh, seek pleasure, avoid pain, which always ends up meaning, well, people do what they do and they don't do what they don't do, which is hardly satisfying. I do think things have real reasons. In fact, I think things have, things are, our behaviors often have two sets of reasons. One is, is, has to do with evolution. So why do we eat? Well, we eat and there's an evolutionary answer because animals that don't eat run out of energy and die. We, we, we seek out sex because animals that don't, don't reproduce. Um, and so, so on. But then you get to the personal motivations. And I think there are cases where, um, where we perfectly know what we'll know what we're doing and why we're doing it in pursuit of a goal. Then we get to the very interesting cases where there is a reason, but we're unaware of it. And in this sense, although I have critical things to say about Freud and I, and some, some, actually some outright mockery of Freud, I think he's right. I, I, I think there's a good reason to believe that we have an unconscious and this unconscious, we are often motivated to do things. Um, for reasons that we're unaware of. And I've never heard you talk about this. Do you, do you, uh, where do you stand on Freud? Well, I was going to ask you about Freud. I was going to ask you, you, you have, a, you do mock him. Uh, you do criticize him, obviously, uh, a little bit like ducks in a barrel, but at the same time, you're very respectful of his impact. And yeah. his impact is actually deeply important, not just because he had influence, but because he helped us see things we did not realize um, many things he said weren't turned out not to be true or haven't, can't be verified. They were, as you often say in, in your description of it. But um, 
I, you know, I wrote this book, Wild Problems, on decision making. And, you know, a philosopher colleague of mine here said, um, do you deal with the fact that most people make decisions without any autonomy? They just, you're just stuck with what you decide and you just do it. <laughs> I said, well, no, I don't want to think about that. Uh, you know, <clears> that's the sort of um, extreme no free will uh, perspective. And, but it does, you know, when you get interviewed now and then, as I do, and, and you do too, you get asked your reasons for doing things. Why did you move to Israel? Yeah. I have 10, I have 10 or 12 stories I could tell that are plausible. I have one I tell myself, uh, which is the real one. I'm not sure I know. And what does that tell me about who I am and, and the way I think of myself in my mind? I made a rational choice. That doesn't mean it was, you know, some deep analytical pro-con list. It was not. It involved lots of different factors. That part's true. But then what pushed me over the edge, I I think I'd have trouble figuring that out. And it's conceivable, Paul, that you would know better than I did as to why I did it. If you were my therapist, for example, or a friend, I'm sure Often people have more insight about others than they do about themselves, which is goes against economics, by the way. But I think it's I think often true. I think that's a that's a, a deep point. That's a, that's I have one advantage over you, which is I'm not vulnerable to the delusions that you have. Um, <laughs> the taking case, which I am sure is not true, um, but uh, but suppose I, I'm your friend. And I notice that you just really care a lot about money. And then you get a job offer and it's a lot of money. And you tell me, oh, I chose this job for, and you mentioned everything but the money. And you sincerely believe it. You would never want to think of yourself motivated by money. These are other good reasons. But I look at you and say, it was the money. It was the money. And and I think there are two extremes. So one extreme is um, you carefully lay out the pros and cons for a decision consciously. You put it on paper. You do the math. Some number works out higher. You choose that. And I know just like you have a lot to say about wild problems, but, but I have a little bit of sympathy for that. The other answer, the most extreme answer is, you know, you, you, um, you go, you make your choice for some reason totally separate, maybe a Freudian reason. You know, you want to impress somebody who's long dead or something. And then after the fact, you bring out the piece of paper and you try to make the numbers work. You do some sort of, as if you're a corrupt accountant, try to make the numbers add up to the, to, to your finality. And they're both extremes. I think neither one, in some way, both is right or neither is right. The truth lies somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Uh, the part this, of this conversation that I find most interesting, and it may be a, just a different illusion, is that, you know, obviously we tell stories about ourselves and our identity and how how we see ourselves, obviously, not the way we are, uh, and it's not the way other people see us. And you could argue that, you know, the life well lived is about bringing those into some kind of <laughs> yeah. consonance. Um, but I, I'm just going to reference a movie, and and no spoilers here, absolutely no spoilers. So, by the way, you, you can react to this, but you cannot refer to any of the plot of this movie or okay. anything else. But I would argue that the Banshees of Inisherin. Have you seen it? I have not seen it yet. Okay, it's on my excellent. List, so you will not be spoiling anything, so I will try to keep my pledge. But The Banshees have been a Sharon. One of the things that movie is about is what happens when you are confronted 
with the change in your self-narrative um, and how that provokes behavior. Uh, it's an extraordinary movie. It should win Best Picture. I don't think it will, but I think it's the best movie made last year and maybe for a long time. It's really quite huh. spectacular. People called – it gets called a comedy. There's nothing um, comic about it. There are things that are amusing in it, but they, it is not a comedy. It is a dark drama okay. about the human condition um, and and quite thought-provoking. But, but my point – to come back to my main point um, – our self-narratives are – where do they come from? How, are, are they a source of comfort for us? Are they – how much of them are true? Is there any work done on that in, in psychology? Yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of work. And my own views have changed. I, if you ask me 10 years ago, i say, well, you know, we're storytelling animals. We, uh, we naturally tell stories about everything we encounter. And our, our own lives are no exception. And people – um, have studied this. Uh, uh, Psychologist named McAdams has studied people's stories in their own lives, and they do have stories. It's it's you know it's it's um, it's a story of redemption. It's rags to riches. It's all these bad things happen to me, and I'm a victim. It's you know anybody tells their story, and and I think we're encouraged to make up these stories. You asked me if you chose to ask me, how did you become a psychologist? And I got an answer. Honestly, it's one answer for, for a podcast. It's a different answer for, for, for close friends. It's a different answer maybe than I really believe. That's an answer. I used to believe that. But one of the actually surprising findings in psychology is how much people differ in this regard. And there are some people who insist, just like some people seem to have no mental imagery. And some people don't have voices in their heads. And some people can't see colors. Some people don't seem to tell stories. It's just this, that, this, that, and they don't, they don't have a storytelling mode about their own lives. Hmm. And they don't seem to suffer from it. But, um, but I'm not sure the storytelling mode is universal, as universal as we like to think it is. Hmm. Well, that's really interesting. Um, but the part I'm, I'm thinking about when we, I'll call it a, a script or a narrative. Yeah. When we're comfortable with the fork in the road, and we make a decision that, say, violates the um, unity of plot and character that have persisted from the past. Yeah. That's unbearable, I think, to us. Um, and so we find a way to convince ourselves that the author, me, <laughs> was, was uh, it's in the ballpark, right? Yeah, I did a slight. And I think the, I don't know. I don't know if that's relevant or not. And, and, what we, and what we might do, it goes back to our discussion of memory, we might edit the past a little bit. You know, I have a friend of mine in trouble in the hospital, but I don't visit him. And I think, well, this isn't like me, but maybe he wasn't such a good friend after all. And I, now I sort of, I had that time and that time and that time. I forget. I, I edit. I smooth out the narrative. Like, I'm like a, like a director who's, for some reason, like something happened in the film and they had to change the ending. So now he goes back and takes them out of certain scenes. And, uh, and we do that. We want to, we want to preserve our story. Yeah. Um, and, and this is why, this is in some way why moral disagreement or political disagreement is so, is so difficult because we, we, these are not sort of, we're not like arguing about a mathematical proof and how it goes where we're arguing things which are deeply tied to our own identity and, and giving them up is very, it's very, feels very costly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very thought provoking. Uh, slightly switching gears, so it's not unrelated. 
what are instincts and and how much of our behavior do you believe is instinctual versus something else? I'm not sure what else there is. You could argue yeah. there really isn't any. It's kind of what I've been hinting at. Yeah. Instincts has a lot of, the word has a lot of different meaning. There's technical um, definitions of it that don't apply very well to people. But um, I think a good definition of them are um, focus on things which are largely unlearned, that it could be shaped by learning. And they come to us fairly uh, automatically. So you could say, you know, flinching back when you see a snake, maybe a good example of an instinct. Um, Steve Pinker wrote a wonderful book called Language Instinct where he talks about that process you were talking about before, baby, is instinctual. It's not the product of learning or culture. It just comes naturally to us. I think one of the great books of psychology is uh, The Principles Principles of Psychology by William James in 1890. And to go back to your critique at the beginning, maybe we should be embarrassed that I read that book and say, wow, that's that. It's not like, it's not like I'm a biologist reading a book from, you know, over a hundred years ago and say, what do you believe that's such nonsense? Now, James had a lot of insights. And in his great book, and this is an answer to your questions. I, I think it, James is right. He lists a whole lot of insight of, of instincts, weird ones, like the instinct to climb, the instinct to create things, the instinct to assert ownership, the instinct for revenge when somebody wrongs us. It goes on and on and on. And I just find this a beautiful passage. And I think that psychology, a lot, big trend psychology and empiricists, oh, we're just neural networks. We're just learning machines. But I think James is actually right. We're populated by a range of different instincts. And these shape our lives in all sorts of ways. Animals do many, quote, instinctual things. Um migration being one of the more extraordinary ones um learning to fly if you're a bird you know you're not taught you're shoved out of the nest yeah we don't for you know from i remember my dad basically arguing that instincts are things we don't understand (laughs) that it's the word we use when we you know and and the you know the for a while the standard answer is well there's a gene it teaches them how to fly. Well, there isn't. There's not one for sure. Yeah. <laughs> there might be a confluence of genes that teach you certain things like language. Um, but, I, you know, I wonder, I think one of the deep aspects of psychology and any thinking person is thinking about how you're different from an animal, but you are an animal. And so... Yeah. Where's that? Where's the part where you know, we're not quite like the other animals? And- yeah, there's 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 a real tension between this. Um, you know, people talk about sexual behavior and romantic behavior, and there's many people in the humanities who describe humans as if we are only species on Earth. They they don't look at any other primates or any other mammals and everything. And everything is, of course, cultural invention. The parents love for their child. Um, you know, affection and desires, or it's all shaped by various, as, as, as if you don't find these in chimpanzees and gorillas and in various forms of other creatures. When we forget about our kinship with other animals, that we are animals, um, then it's, it's, it, and we miss out so much on, we, we end up with bizarrely unrealistic theories of human nature, like the, the ridiculous theory that love of our children is something that culture has decided to program within us for, capitalism reasons or whatever 
silly idea. On the other hand, I have evolutionary psychology friends who analogize everything we do to the behavior of animals. And that, that gets me annoyed too. I'm always annoyed. That gets me annoyed too. Because look what we're doing now. It, man is man is the only creature that has podcasts. I mean, what we are doing is is so different from what we find in, in any other creature that it, who could deny that culture and technology sped upon by our unique language and our unique intelligence has put us in a place that sometimes thinking in terms of, of the behavior of, of non-human animals just isn't isn't productive. So you look at religion, you look at science. There's not the slightest analogy. So my maybe unsatisfying answer is we are both, of course we are animals and of course we are not animals. Yeah. Yeah, And I think uh, yeah. Um, And I think, by the way, religious texts are actually good on this. The the you you see the insight and appreciation of both our animal nature and non animal nature in the in the great religious teachings. Yeah, for sure. Um, now I, I was thinking uh, you know, there's a line in uh, I think it's the Talmud. Um, in one pocket, you should have a the the saying. Uh, I came from a a drop, and I'm going back to dust. I'm nothing. I, I'm meaningless. Yeah. My my essence is is the most tawdry and worldly. And um, and the second thing I should put in the other pocket is the world was created for me. That I have a unique yeah. role to play. Like, how big is that gap? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, that's I, exactly I, it. That's yeah. exactly it. Yeah. Um. I had a recent guest. Um, Anna Mastriani talking about the failure of the peer review system. It's a slight change of topic here. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> well, now, you, this conversation is so pleasant up to yeah. now. Um, his argument is that uh, peer review is a failed system. Uh, what are your thoughts? You, you've surely reviewed many papers. You've had many papers reviewed. Uh, the replication crisis is in some sense one of the more obvious indictments of the system. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Um, so I'm also the co-editor of a journal, Behavioral and Brain Sciences, and uh, we do interdisciplinary papers of, of large theoretical import, and we rely on peer review. I guess I'll say a couple of things. One thing is there's all sorts of problems that the peer review system is not equipped to solve and, and fails in that regard. So, So my reviewers do not redo the statistics, they do not fact check. A lot of garbage is going to get through and neither reviewers nor me in my role as editor is ever going to catch it. I don't go back to see whether the citations are right. There's a lot of garbage gets through. Um, but I think I'm a defender of the peer review system and that when it's done well, it actually keeps a lot of awful stuff from getting out and also improves papers. And it's very, you know, you, every psychologist wants to get tenure, wants to get promotion, wants to get the next grant. I publish, I submit a paper, and by that time, I just want reviewers to say, what a wonderful paper published. That's, that's, I want applause. I, I want, I want a publication. I'm not, I'm never happy when reviews come in and they're long and detailed, but they make it a better paper. 
they improve my work and make me smarter when done, when done well. And in that way, I'm a defender of peer review. I also worry about the alternative. So now we have the technologies that everybody just posts their papers. Forget about journals, forget about, about peer review, just post their papers. But now the problem is there's now a million papers in a field I'm interested in. Which ones do I look at? Then in the current system, I read the journals, which have vetted them. Now, which ones do I look at? And the answer is I look at the ones from Harvard, from Yale, from Princeton, from famous people. There's something, there's something when done right, whatever is flaws is something deeply meritocratic about peer review. And just posting things without peer review and letting people sift through themselves will favor the powerful and the well-connected and the well-financed. Wait a minute. Which is going to favor that? The non-peer review or the peer review? The non-peer review is going to, is going to favor, is going to give it an enormous prestige bias. Yeah, because peer, review, peer, review. peer review's got it too. Peer review that too, but you could do blinded peer review. Is is in economics it's usually one way. The authors don't know who reviewed your paper their paper, but the rev, the reviewer knows who wrote it. Is that true in psychology also? It's almost always true, with some exception that authors don't know who the reviewers are. In many journals, not my own actually, but in many journals, the reviews the reviewers are blind. They don't know who it's from. Now, to be fair. Often, you know, um, you can they see a paper and they say, and, and they say, you know, like we're going to discuss the work of Bloom and Bloom's theories, which I think is right, and set up a bunch of experiments that, you know, see Bloom 2020A, 2020B. You know, it, sometimes it's easy to tell. It's easy to tell. So, so you can get around the blinding pretty easily. And many people, many people do. I, you know, I'm not going to make give the quote about democracy, but but I, I do think that in some way peer review is a pretty awful system, but I've never seen a good substitute. Did did, did your guest have a substitute in mind? Yeah, and, and it's um, it, it hasn't aired yet. It'll be out in a couple of weeks. Um, he says, just let's go back to the old way, which was people wrote papers and people discussed them, and some got more attention than others, and some got ignored, kind of like peer-reviewed papers in reality. It's not like yeah. peer-reviewed papers become, you know, uh, chiseled in the stone as truth. Most people understand it's an imperfect process. Actually, what I think think is interesting, I think those of us in the kitchen know that peer review is deeply imperfect and maybe better than an alternative. Yeah. For me, the bigger problem is how the non-academics consume peer-reviewed research as if it's truth. Yes. And, and yes. so my sympathy for Adam's argument is uh, to to disband that uh, that phenomenon, but yeah, when it comes yeah. out, you can. I think you know. I, I I'll, yeah, I'll yeah, well, you know what I think, but but maybe this isn't isn't an argument at best defense my field, but in some way, peer review is the least of our problems. <laughs> we have we have as a science so many problems that we're struggling with. Um, I talk in the book about the replication crisis, which was. Basically, we did our stats in a way that made it easy, easier than it should have been to get significant results and now showered the field of significant results. And then when you do the stats right, they all go away. There's um, our diversity problem, our weird problem, which is um, one guy, one Joe Henrich put it, uh, a randomly selected American undergraduate is 4,000 times more likely to be a subject in a psychology firm than anyone from outside the West. We have we have a psychology basically of the American undergraduate. Yeah, that's a great point. And and there's a there's a file drawer problem. If I get a really cool result, out it goes to science. If it doesn't work, it stays in my file drawer. Yeah. Um, 
there's political problems where I think our field has political biases and economic biases that favored sort of work gets, gets popular. But I will say, having said all that, in the sense of psychology, we're getting better. We're, we really are getting better. We're yeah, doing right. bigger studies. These, these findings have become well-known. Everyone yells at us for replication failures, but we're, we're the ones that found the problem. It's not that we're the only ones guilty of it. <laughs> there was a, a nature paper out that, that looked at cancer research. And cancer research, and I love psychology, but, but, you know, if I had to fund one of them, I'd fund cancer research. Uh, and, and so much of their work just doesn't replicate. Yeah. yeah. It's so, you know, we're, we're getting better. Yeah. Um, what's the good life? <laughs> what's, sure. You what's got, the good life? I'll give you a couple minutes. Go ahead. What's the good life? Um, you have something I to say about here, it in the book. It's not a, it's not a cold I, I do have something, I do have something to, say it, to say it in the book. Um, I, I talk a little bit about psychology. If you think the good life is happiness, and many people do, you and I don't, but many people do, there's some insights as to what does and what doesn't make us happy. Again, again, some surprises. So I'll tell you, money makes us happy. And you go, well, duh, money buys good things. I knew that already. But I'll also tell you that people get happier as they get older, past 50. Happiness goes up and up and up, a very well-replicated finding. Controlling and for money, I, I assume. Controlling for yeah. money, controlling for, for all sorts of things. It goes, it goes up. Um, and, and as we talked about before, children have a complicated relationship with happiness. I think a good life involves um, flourishing in many different ways. I think, I think happiness isn't sufficient. I think uh, being a moral person, living a life of meaning... For some people, living a life that has spiritual or transcendent value, um, a full and meaningful life is something above and beyond a lot of pleasure. And I think it, it is, it is, it is, uh, doesn't have a one word answer, but it includes pleasure, but also meaning and morality. I wouldn't say somebody lived a good life if they preyed upon people and were selfish and cruel. And here, I'm here, of course, I'm not necessarily speaking as a psychologist, just as a, as a person with views. I, I have a question here, just sort of related to that. It's a cheap shot, and it, it's it, it's uh, not unrelated to my opening question. It goes like this: If psychology were useful, psychology professors should be better at fill in the blank. Yeah. Uh, I put marriage, losing weight, parenting, being happy, anything. Now. I said psychology professors. I think a better question would be if you spend time thinking about psychology. But yeah. the psychology professor question is about the academic literature uh, yeah. and the and the insights one might get from that. Uh, again, in economics, economists aren't very good at many things. They do understand opportunity costs, usually. They understand something about comparative advantage. Maybe that's helpful. There aren't that much... I don't think there's that much practical about the study of economics. It mainly helps you understand the world around you in a more useful and powerful way. Um, And the only really practical thing is it discourages you from buying individual stocks, which is somewhat (laughs) helpful, perhaps. Uh, But what about psychology? Oh, that's a good question. Has it helped you in any way? That's a good question. Um, just to, just to, to pile on an economist a while while I desperately think of an answer. Um, there's a book, it was written by McCloskey called If You're So Smart. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, and it's a lovely title because the line is, of course, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? And the idea is if economists knew a lot about the economy, they should all be rich. 
because they'd be able to predict yeah. how things are going to go because you predict that you get rich. And the claim is that they are not rich, therefore they are not smart. <laughs> um, we are we are not we are not smart either. I think um, I think psychologies uh, uh, the claims of psychology are often incredibly overblown. We don't know how to have how to have good marriages. We don't really have any insights. A lot of things that really matter for practical life we don't have insights on. I think we have insights, important, valuable insights about things like consciousness and memory and reasoning and language and social connections. But they're all at a theoretical level that that don't translate in any immediate sense to to practical um, things. To answer your question, I'm a I, I studied child development, and and uh, my my then wife was also a developmental psychologist, and we raised two kids, and we were often asked, "Well, as developmental psychologists, you must have the parenting thing that's right." And oh my God, we did not. Parenting involves a lot of strengths and skills of character. Uh, that I'm not taught in a psychology class. The one thing being a psychologist helped me with is I learned not to take psychologists that seriously. So, so you know, we had all of these child-raising books, and they would all say, sleep with the kid, don't sleep with the kid, do this, don't do this. And we would just choose choose the one that seemed to work best for us to say there. And uh, it gives you, if at, at minimum, at this time, the psychological understanding gives you a healthy um, skepticism about psychology. And to go back to what you said before, if I could say anything to sort of people who consume psychology, I would say, don't ever, ever, ever take a single study that seriously. There's stuff you should take seriously, but there are big bodies of evidence accumulated over many years. Just because BuzzFeed or New York Times says, oh, this study finds this, ignore it. Yeah. Wait for more. We talked earlier about Freud when I had Roosevelt Montas on the show. He talked about how much he learned from Freud. Um, and you mentioned William James. Obviously, I'm someone who believes that Adam Smith could be read profitably, even yeah. though he wrote in the 18th century. Um, other than your book, which is a great starting place, which I recommend, other than your book, for a casual, um, beginner who wants to learn more about psychology you know people would ask me what's the best textbook i should read none of them they're not meant to Nobody be read do text. not read a textbook yeah. got to read something else uh but we'd recommend william james should you read should one read freud today uh, or should we just be aware of the impact that he's had on our culture and our way of thinking implicitly i think freud i think freud rewards reading but not as a way of learning about psychology, really more as a way of, of being exposed to a powerful mind, chewing on interesting topics. Um, my favorite book for Freud is Civilization and its Discontents. But I wouldn't recommend anybody wading into the interpretation of dreams. It's just, it's a very big book. And, and unless you're really interested in intellectual history, it's not going to give you much of value. Um, I will give a recommendation. Uh, my friend and colleague and, 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 and advisor, Stephen Pinker, has written many, many popular books on the mind and on rationality and on um, the decline of violence and so on, which really uh, reward reading and are excellent. And um, all I'll say is on um, in my webpage, uh, paulbloom.net, and my FAQ page, I give a list of, of books written by non-psychologists, which I think are just wonderful introductions to psychology. Two that come to mind are Maria Kornikova's book on poker, which is this wonderful book on on what poker 
and bluffing teaches you about the mind. Mm-hmm. And this fantastic book by Rory Sutherland, who's an uh, an, an ad man, I guess, in the UK called uh, Alchemy. Oh, yeah. Which he, is brimming, brimming with insights yeah, about human nature. It's a fascinating book. We talked about it on Econ Talk. Encourage, let's, we'll put a link up to it. But yeah, the book's, he's, uh, he has the great advantage and disadvantage of not suffering from an academic background so there are many <laughs> no, it's, it's plain it's plain he doesn't but the book is full of these wonderful stories and wonderful insights um what's next for you this I'm, is like I'm, a, I'm, in a way this is a capstone kind of book right it's an overview of what you've learned from your field which yeah, I, you know I, I hate to think of it as a swan song or oh, something so I'm frantically getting it <laughs> um I, I I I'm writing a book on perversity on perverse choices why we choose to do things that we know are wrong. And I find a fascinating topic. And, you know, I have wild problems, in a sense, open in front of me as, as I write my book. Um, but uh, I'm extremely interested in why we do this. And I think it, it, it reveals all sorts of things about human nature. So this is a book I, I have a proposal out to an editor. Um, and, I, and I'm very excited to get started with it. It is one of the things, and you were talking to Sam Harris about this, one of the unfortunate things about a book, which I, I love to talk about psych, don't get me wrong, but but by the time the book comes out, it has been a year since I sent in my manuscript to my editor, and now they're working on, on new projects, but uh, but but the, but the psychology is always going to be you know front and center in my mind. My guest today has been Paul Bloom. Paul, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.